Thank you for that great introduction. That's the second best introduction I've ever had, actually. The first one was when the guy who was supposed to introduce me didn't show up and I had to introduce myself. So uh, that was actually the best, but uh, in all seriousness, it is good to be here. And I bring you greetings from two of the graduates. Some of you caught on to that, yeah. Um, Steve Miracle and Darren Beck. Anybody know those guys? Yeah. So, uh, they are on our staff doing a great job. Darren is getting married here in just a few months. And Steve's still trying to figure out who will take him. So uh, pray for Steve. They are doing a great job, though, so I bring you their greetings. Pardon my stiff dress here. I have lunch with the boss today, and we're going somewhere special, I was told, so I had to dress up for him. But if it was just for you, I'd be open calling. We'd be enjoying it on Sunday nights. I don't wear ties, and Sunday mornings they have to make me wear ties. So uh, don't let the outer appearance uh, fool you. Reminds me of a story. One of the men in our church, his name, I call him Big Al, dear friend of mine. He's about six foot four. He's the sales director at a car lot in town, a very successful guy, has a great family. One time late at night, he and his family had been over the hill in Santa Cruz. Some of you know where Santa Cruz is. And it had been raining all day, and they came back over into uh, the uh, Santa Clara County area to San Jose, where we are, Las Gatas. It was about one in the morning, and uh, their kids were asleep in the car, and they got this crazy urge to go in and get uh, groceries at one of these 24-hour grocery stores. And so they did that. Finally, about two in the morning, they got home. Their kids had been sleeping for hours. They dumped them all in their big king-size bed, and everybody went to sleep. Well, early in the morning, the kids woke up. And uh, those of you who have kids and those of you who will have kids, you'll soon learn that uh, there's nothing more difficult when you're wanting to sleep and the kids aren't. So they're all rumbling around in the bed, and Al and his wife are trying to sleep, and they're touching his face and mess with, messing with his hair and singing songs and having fun, and they're just sleeping like logs because they're not going to let that get in the way of the necessary sleep they want. Until he hears this sound, which is one of the most horrible sounds to hear early in the morning when you're not ready to hear it, and it was the sound of the garbage truck out front. And he realized he had not put his garbage out. So he hops out of bed like a wild man, throws on a t-shirt, throws on some sweats, finds these crazy looking slippers that his mother-in-law had given to him that he'd never worn before, but they were quick to put on. They were hot pink and bright blue, and he sticks those on. And he runs out there trying to get these garbage cans out to the, the garbage truck. And he's got five of them, and big Al, man, he'd pick up two with one hand practically. So he's out there toting these things, he sits them down. And the guys won't get off the garbage truck. They're telling him to put the stuff in himself. And he thinks, what's wrong with these guys? So he goes ahead and does it because he's in a hurry. He gets all five of them in there. He runs inside finally, just tired as can be, feeling like an idiot. And uh, one of his little baby's diapers needed changing, his smallest little girl. So he's in the process of changing her diaper. And she looks up at him while he's changing the diaper. And she kind of smiles and she reaches up and touches his head. He feels his head and says, what's going on? So he went and looked in the mirror. And in those early morning hours, as he was trying to sleep, his little girls put three ponytails in his hair that he knew nothing about. Well, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have got off the garbage truck either. So, uh, so don't let my stiff looks fool you, all right? It's not as bad as it, as it seems. I wish I could be here open collar, not in ponytails, but uh, basically as a normal Joe. I want to talk to you today about prayer. I do it with a little bit of fear and trepidation because fairs, prayer is the most often talked about and least often practiced discipline of the Christian life. In fact, someone once said that any discussion on prayer which is, does not result in the practice of prayer is not, o- not only unhelpful, but it is dangerous. And we have seemingly in Christendom mastered the art of talking about prayer as a replacement to doing it. 
In fact, the more we talk about it, the more it kind of becomes an anesthetic because we think that somehow in talking about it, we've somehow progressed on the pathway of prayer when the reality is that it's not really done us any good at all. So today I don't want to really philosophize with you as much about prayer as much as I want to motivate you in that regard. Let me share with you my testimony. It's, it's kind of strange to me that, that periodically, in fact seemingly regularly, I'm involved in, in the leadership and prayer asked to speak in different places on the subject. I have to tell you, I didn't set out to be an expert on prayer. In fact, I don't think there is one. No one will ever graduate from the school of prayer. We're all learners together. But when I was in college, in fact, as far back as high school, I remember reading in the Bible, and I was a fervent guy at that time, and um, had been involved in a lot of evangelism on campus at my public school. But I had read about going into your closet to pray. So not knowing what hermeneutics was, I just thought it was some guy who had a funny last name or something. I, I took that literally. So I cleaned out the closet in my bedroom as a junior in high school, and I set up a pillow and a little lamp in my Bible, and I remember going in there as a high schooler, and I would just start five minutes at a time. But as you know, your spiritual appetite grows the more that you feed it. And as it turned out in my high school years, I remember sometimes hours at a time sitting in that closet thinking this was really it, you know, but just learning to enjoy the presence of the Lord. And I tried to continue that discipline as best as I could through my college years, but then when we got into, I got into seminary, and we knew that in just a year or two, we were going to be charting out to the Pacific Northwest. We wound up leaving with uh, nine cars, two semis full of furniture, uh, six married couples, four single adults, just by faith going out to the Northwest to start a church. We had no idea what we were doing. The only thing we knew, knew we should do is pray. Now, in my college years, no one ever taught me to pray. In fact, no one ever infected me in any way in relation to prayer. And I hope that on this campus there's some professor, maybe some leader, who really is modeling and mentoring you in the area of prayer. But in seven years of college and seminary, my particular situation, there was never one pastor, never one, one professor, uh, never anyone who in any way called me alongside to say, hey, let me teach you to pray. Oh, yeah, we had great lectures on prayer. We had great you know, thoughts and great uh, acrostics and strategies about prayer. But no one ever prayed. No one ever brought me alongside them to teach me to pray. And so not knowing really how to do it very effectively, I just met with our team and I said, hey, let's just get a room on campus 6 a.m. in the morning. Let's start praying from 6 to 8. Sounds kind of crazy and radical, but let's do it every weekday. And I was kind of ticked off because the milkman always made it by 5.30, you know. And I thought if the milkman could be up at 5.30 to make a buck, we can get up to seek God. So we just did it. We didn't know how to pray. No one was teaching us. We didn't have any books on prayer. We just met at 6 a.m. and started praying. Somebody stand up, share a verse, and say, okay, well, that's nice. Let's get on our knees and figure this out. So we did two hours at a time. For a year and a half, every weekday morning for two hours, we prayed. And I guess that's the only reason I'm here today, because somewhere I just lucked out and started praying and couldn't stop. When we got to our church in the Pacific Northwest, we had all-night prayer meetings regularly. We continued early morning prayer. God was able to enable me to disciple some men at Grace Church who continue to lead early morning prayer hours. We had some entire evenings at Grace. Some of you may have been there dedicated to concerts of prayer. We continue to do that at Los Gatos Christian Church. We, uh, every morning, weekday morning, have a thing called early watch. On Monday mornings, we have 35 to 40 men from 6 to 7 just on their knees. It's the highlight of my week. On Tuesdays, we have women. On Wednesdays, we have singles. On Thursdays, they pray for world missions. On Fridays, we have couples. On Saturdays, we have a time for families to pray. On Sunday, starting at 5.30 in the morning, uh, going for an hour, and then at 6.45, and then at 8, then at 9.15, then at 11, we have people in our prayer room interceding, praying for the services in the same in the evening. 
Now, why is that? Because we found some special tricks about prayer? No, because we just know we've got to do it. Let me just share with you three brief ideas before I get into really the message of the morning. Some things I've learned about prayer. Maybe you've heard them before, maybe you haven't. I think the one thing I would say to all of you in this week of emphasizing prayer, prayer is that the only way to learn to pray is by praying. And that's why I almost fear talking to you about prayer, because some of you leave here all inspired but never do a thing about it. I hope someone will leave here today saying, okay, I'm going to do something about it. My roommate and I, we're going to find a room where we're just going to start. We don't know how, we don't have books, we don't have encyclopedias, we don't know all the Greek words for prayer, but we're going to get on our knees and start praying. I hope that will be the case. Let me say also to you that prayer is more caught than it is taught. I'm going to show you in just a few moments that Jesus Christ went to greater lengths to model prayer for His disciples than He did to instruct them about the principles of prayer. And I honestly believe prayer is more caught than it is taught. In fact, Mark, some of you have been in my seminary class before, you've heard me say this, that... Uh, Prayer is really the missing link to personal discipleship. You know, we all think, man, I'm going to make disciples. So we're going to go to Denny's once a month or once a week, fill in the blanks, have a Grand Slam breakfast. And man, I'm a hot disciple now. Let me ask you, how many people have you ever discipled in the area of prayer? I mean, really disciple. I could say much about that. Charles Tremendous Jones, not much of a theologian, but he did say this. He said, all the truth in the world will do you little good until God brings a person across your path and you are able to see that truth in action and then suddenly that truth becomes a driving force in your life. Are you a driving force in anyone's life in regard to prayer? Is anyone a driving force in your life in regard to prayer? See, we can talk about the truth of prayer until we're blue in the face, but until you see that truth in action, prayer will never grip your heart and become a reality in your life. Thirdly, let me just say this, the prayer life of any group or any church will never rise above the commitment of its primary leadership. And let me say to those of you going into full-time ministry, American Christianity does not need another prayerless leader. We need another prayerless leader like we need another hole in the head. And I'll tell you, there are a dime a dozen. we got people in prayer, and I'm not saying I'm a giant because I'm a learner. we got people in leadership, man, they, they know all the, the theology, in all the methodology, they are church growth experts. But until the leadership of the church of Jesus Christ begins to pray, the church of Jesus Christ will never begin to pray. As I look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, at the commitment of the early church leaders who said, We will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the Word. I cry out in my heart, God, where are those kind of leaders in the church today? I hope that some of you here who aspire to pastoral ministry will listen closely to what we're saying this morning because so many of us leave after seven years of great theological education and almost nothing in terms of an education in the ministry of prayer. And if I read my Bible right, I realize that the early church was dynamic because they were at the helm of, there was at the helm of those churches those who were committed to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Otherwise, you're fighting with a single-edged sword that can't do the work God intended it to do. What is prayer? All of us would have definitions, wouldn't we? We'd all have an idea as to what we think prayer is, like the one little boy in Sunday school class and the teacher asked him what is prayer, and he said, well, prayer is a message sent to God at night and on weekends when the rates are cheap. <laughs> That's kind of where he got his idea, because he saw his parents at night and on Sundays, you know, they prayed, so he figured, kind of like a telephone call at night and on weekends when it doesn't cost much. But let me say this to you, prayer is simply depending on God. I define prayer as the attitude and the activity of depending on God 
through intimate personal communion. In fact, prayerlessness, catch this, prayerlessness is my declaration of independence from God. So like it or not, or whether you like to come to terms with that or not, in, in reality and, and emotionally and intellectually, if you have not been praying, you have been declaring very clearly to God, God, you know, I'm glad you're up there and you're nice and you give me warm fuzzy here once in a while, but really I can make it without you. I don't need you today. I didn't need you last week. You know, I'm glad you're God, but I'm me and, you know, you do your thing and I'll do mine. That's the essence of what prayerlessness is all about, isn't it? And so prayer is really depending upon God. Now, a couple one more thought and then we'll get into a few verses today. I think one of the greatest challenges is keeping people motivated to pray. What is the ultimate and the eternal and the enduring motivation for prayer? You can come and you can hear me talk and you can listen to last Monday's chapel and you can get this tape and, you know, jack yourself up about every three months and say, okay, I'm going to get back into prayer. But what is the ultimate motivation for prayer? What drives you to get out of bed in the morning to seek God? What's going to motivate you ten years from now to still be hungry to pray and to be leading and, and infecting people in the, the ministry of prayer within the church? What will it be? I tell you, I remember sitting in a seminary class and a guy named Peter Lord, who's a pastor in Florida, came in and he said to this group of seminarians, he says, young men, let me ask you a question. He said, if God came today in, in the flesh, I mean, you, he had an appearance, you know, or an angel or whatever, he came and talked to you and he said, hey, I'm going to make you two promises today. Number one, You'll die when you go to heaven. Your, your salvation is secure. But number two, I'm going to tell you, I'm never going to use you again. He said, would you still pray? If God said, you'll go to heaven, but I'll never use you again, would you still pray? Let me tell you, I had to learn this the hard way. Because even when I was fervent for two hours a morning at Liberty, and even when we went out to start a church, I was praying in light of the fact that I was going to be starting a church and we needed God to bless us and work and make us, you know, the next mega church of the year type of thing. But that didn't happen. It became a test of my motives. And you see the tendency at the college levels to be thinking about yonder horizon saying, oh, I better pray so God will use me. What if God said, I'm not going to use you. Would you still pray? You see, we always get down on the prosperity theologians, you know, oh, they just view God as a heavenly slot machine, you know. And God, make me rich, make me healthy, make me wealthy, take care of me, give me all the accoutrements of life at its best. But you know, we're just as guilty. Because we view God as a heavenly power distributor. We say, God, I want to seek you as long as you use me. Give me power. Make my sermons great. Make my schooling successful. Make my ministry dynamic, right? So we're just, again, using God for our own means. Let me talk to you about a motivation for prayer. And this is very brief. And one of them is going to be the focus of our study this morning. The ultimate motivation for prayer is that God is worthy to be sought. God is worthy to be sought. That has to be the foundational motivation in your life. Look, we have prayer on Monday mornings at 6 a.m. Let me tell you, I preach three times in the morning. Sometimes a fourth time on Sunday evenings. I'm up at a prayer meeting at 5.30 Sunday mornings. Let me tell you, I do not feel like going to a prayer meeting at 6 o'clock on Monday morning. And if I was going just so God could bless our church and bring revival, or I was going just so He could make me a successful pastor, man, I'd sleep because it's not worth it. Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. But you know what comes to my mind every Monday morning, a little before 5 when the alarm goes off? God is worthy to be sought this morning. And that doesn't change. 
I can have a small church, a big church. I can be quadriplegic. I can be an Olympic star. I can be highly intelligent or the biggest idiot that ever walked the earth. I can have terrible circumstances or great circumstances. Today, God is worthy to be sought. Amen? And that's the ultimate motivation for prayer. Another motivation that we're going to focus on today is the motivation of the example of Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk to you today about the prayer life of Jesus. Because when you think about the fact we are called to be Christians, we all want to be like Jesus, you know, we want to have His gentleness and His grace and His knowledge and His wisdom and react to people. That say, but at the core of Jesus' life was a life of prayer. And that is one of the ultimate mysteries. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but the prayer life of Christ is a second motivation. Obviously, the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, hey, listen, 1 Corinthians 2, he said, I'm not going to be satisfied with words of human wisdom and, and impressing people with my ability, but I want to preach in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power and the motivation of realizing that I don't want to do the work of God apart from the power of God is a strong motivation. Obviously, the motivation of God's design for the church will, will cause you to want to pray when you look at the early church and their dependence on prayer and the fact that it's not an organization, but it is an organism that is to be filled with His glory, that will motivate you to pray. And of course, the needs of the world will motivate you to pray. Jesus saw the multitude and He said, hey, they're like sheep that are scattered. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers so the needs of the world motivate us. But this morning, let's look at Jesus Christ. I want to try to motivate you from the model of the Lord Jesus. I want to just point out two things. The second main point will have some sub-thoughts to it. But first of all, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ depended on God in prayer in the daily routines of life. And that's the ultimate mastery of prayer, isn't it? You see, Jesus Christ prayed out of conviction, not out of crisis, not out of convenience. And how often do we, you know what it's like, we'll pray out of crisis. Lord, help me, Lord, save me, Lord, my grades, Lord, that girl, you know, if she doesn't go out with me, you know, I'm sunk. And crisis, 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 you know, we just kind of pray from one crisis to the other. Or we pray out of convenience, you know, when there's a chapel or there's Sunday morning or whatever it is. Jesus Christ prayed out of conviction in the daily routines of life. We don't have time to look at them all, but throughout his ministry, he reiterated, especially in the book of John, he said in John 5.19, you don't need to turn there, we'll turn to a passage here in just a minute. But he said in John 5.19 and again in 30, he says, listen, the Son can do nothing of Himself. I can only do that which is initiated by the Father, nothing of my own initiative. He said in John 8.28 and 29, I can do nothing of my own initiative once again. In John 12.49, I do not speak of my own initiative. He says in John 17, he says, everything, Father, you have given me is from you. And he goes on in that great high priestly prayer, John 17, to talk about his intimacy and his union with the Father. Can you imagine that? Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, says, I'm not going to do anything on my own initiative. I'm not going to speak unless it comes from the Father. Everything I've got comes from the Father. It was the choice out of conviction to be dependent on God. Think of Mark 1.35, and Jesus rising up a great while before the day departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed the indication of that verse. That's normal stuff for Jesus. He was just up every day meeting with the Father. A great while before the day, a solitary place, there he prayed. Why? Some crisis? No. Convenient? Certainly not. He had a conviction about depending on the Father. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. If you will, we're going to be looking at uh, numerous passages in the Gospel of Luke, so get your Bible out and I think you'll appreciate 
what we're going to be saying and, and seeing here. But a powerful, powerful passage. It says, And it came about that while he was praying in a certain place, that after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And of course, this is where we get into the model prayer called the Disciples' Prayer. But look at what is happening. This is one of numerous instances. I wish we had time to look at all the dozens of times when Jesus was recorded as praying. But what's very interesting is the disciples' accounts of him not just saying a prayer, but actually being engaged in extensive personal prayer. Obviously, if they knew about it, they had in some way been influenced by it. And in this case, it wasn't that Jesus had given a great sermon on prayer and said, Oh, Lord, give us some more truth. I say, Lord, we've been watching you. And your life is compelling to us. And would you teach us to pray? He said, in fact, even John taught his disciples to pray. And I see some patterns there. You remember Moses in Exodus 33? Some of you may have heard me speak on this before. But how when he was, was meeting with God face to face as a man speaks to his friend and the glory of God would come down. It said Moses would leave the tent, but his disciple, a young man, Joshua, the son of Nun, would stay there. You know what Moses was doing? He was pulling his disciple into that most intimate encounter with God to teach Joshua to prepare him for leadership of the next generation through the dynamic of prayer. And so here Jesus in the normal routine of life is praying and has become so captivating that the disciples ask him, to teach them to do the only thing they've ever asked Him to teach them to do, and that is to pray. There's many, many instances of Jesus' prayer life. Look over at Luke chapter 21 and verse 37. The daily routines of life, He was a model of depending on God. Just in the daily routines of life. Luke chapter 21, look at Luke 21 verse 37. In fact, if you look at verse 36, he's telling them that, hey, you need to guard yourself. The worries of life are going to come in you like a trap. And on everyone, be alert, praying. They didn't leave from there. What did he do? Verse 37, now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And almost all commentators agree that Olive Grove was his place of prayer. And we know that. That's where he wound up before he went to the cross. And so in the daily routines of ministry, he was constantly engaged in prayer. Let me say this, and this is so mysterious to me in a sense. Maybe it will be to you. Jesus Christ was the only one who ever walked this earth who didn't have to pray. You understand that? He didn't have to pray. He was God. He didn't even have to do it. Jesus Christ was the only one who ever walked on the earth who didn't have to pray but did in order to radically affect the lives of His followers who do have to pray but don't. <laughs> he became the radical example. One who didn't have to do it. And if Jesus Christ had this kind of dependency upon the Father in the daily routines of life, how much more do you need that and do I need that? He's the only one who didn't have to pray but did in order to radically affect the lives of those who don't, who do have to pray but don't. And he was a model of perfect fellowship. There's a great book that came out in 1904. You can't get it today, but it was by S.D. Gordon. And he says this. Please tune in and catch this. He says, when God would win back this prodigal world, he sent down a man. That man, while more than a man, insisted on being truly a man. 
He touched human life at every point. No man seems to have understood prayer and to have prayed as he did. Jesus prayed. He loved to pray. He prayed so much and so often that it became a part of his life. It became to him like breathing, involuntary. There is nothing we need so much as to learn how to pray. There are two ways of receiving instruction. One by being told, the other by watching someone else. The second is the simpler and the surer way. How better can we learn to pray than by watching how Jesus prayed and then trying to imitate Him? Not just studying what He said about prayer, but how He Himself prayed when down here surrounded by the same circumstances and the same temptations. Now, that's powerful. And I think one of the ultimate motivations for prayer, other than the worthiness of God, how worthy He is to be sought, is the prayer life of Jesus Christ. And Scripture makes it very clear, 1 Peter chapter 2, we are called to walk in His steps. So he learned to pray and depend on the Father in the daily routines of life. But secondly, he learned to depend on the Father in the pressure points of life. The pressure points of life. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we'll be looking at a few passages here, but... Jesus was the perfect model of depending on the Father in the daily routines of life, but then secondly, depending on the Father in the pressure points of life. And some of you listening right now, you have some incredible pressure points. You've got relational pressure points. You've got physical pressure points. Today, you've got some emotional pressure points, circumstantial pressure points. But look with me at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. What does it say? Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest, verse 15, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. To say it another way, Jesus has experienced every pressure point that you'll ever experience. And so what is the result of knowing that He has gone through that? Look at verse 16. Let us therefore... Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That's prayer. Knowing that Jesus learned to cope victoriously with the pressure points of life through prayer, let us now draw boldly with confidence before Him, before that throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want you to see just some of the pressure points in Jesus' life that I think will help you right now where you are in your prayer life to understand that Jesus has been there, that Jesus learned to pray, that He has set the perfect model. And right now where you are, He will through you by His grace accomplish the work of prayer. Let me say this to you, by the way. Jesus wants you to pray more than you want to pray. He wants you to seek His face more than you even want to seek His face. And so you can depend upon Him to work in you and through you to make you a person of prayer. It's not that you have to sit and muster it up and say, mm, okay, I think I kind of feel an urge to pray today. No, it's a matter of saying, Lord, you want me to pray. You have prayed. You are the perfect model. And you have promised to live your life out through me. So all I have to do today is by the act of my will make myself available to you. And you're going to pray through me. Makes it very clear in Romans 8, the Spirit will play through us to teach us how to pray. And Jesus, the perfect model, has led the way, and He will give us strength to pursue that pathway as well. Let me just give you just a few of the pressure points that you'll see in Jesus' life where He was a perfect model of prayer for us. 
First of all, one pressure point shows us that he prayed when he was facing expectations beyond human ability. Catch that. Expectations beyond human ability. Now, probably every one of you in some realm are facing expectations beyond human ability. And I can tell you right now, I am. You know, here I am, a whopping 32 years old, pastoring this big church up north that's been through all kinds of struggles and problems, leading a staff, having elders, and, 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 and that's my little problem. You've got your own that are no less significant, don't you? Facing human expectations that are beyond your ability. Look with me at, back to Luke chapter 5. I want us to go back to Luke now and see a practical pressure point in Jesus' life. Look at Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. And look at the model of His life of prayer. Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. To give you a little bit of the context, Jesus' popularity is increasing very dramatically. The pressures of the expectant crowds are weighing heavily upon Him. He's trying to meet the needs, and yet He knew that the greater the pressures, the more diligently His private time must be guarded with God. And look with me at Luke chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. What is it? Luke chapter 5, rather, verses 15 and 16. It says, The news about Him was spreading even farther, and great multitudes were gathering to hear Him and to be healed of their sickness. But He Himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Now most of us, when that kind of pressure comes on, you know our popularity is increasing. Say, man, well, you know, I gotta get a press release. I gotta get a bio. I gotta get a PR agent in here, man. We gotta fuel this baby and, and stoke this fire and, and keep this ministry on the road. Jesus said, Man, I gotta pray. I've got to pray. Because the expectations are beyond human ability. You know, in our ministry, Los Gatos Christian, and it's, it's a sovereign story as to how I left here to go there because I was an idiot in some ways to leave a beautiful, promising ministry here to go in that direction. But God is sweeping us along in some really incredible ways. And He's going to sweep you along. And He is right now. You see the, the horizons broadening for you. You see the opportunities growing. You see people wanting to, to depend upon you for leadership and for direction maybe in some ways. And let me challenge you that at that pressure point, Jesus had one thing in mind, and that was to continue off and to slip away into the wilderness and to pray. He never left the source. He never forgot in the pressure points what His focus of dependence was. So he prayed when facing expectations beyond human ability. Secondly, catch this. He prayed when facing decisions beyond human wisdom. Any of you have any of those in your life right now? Decisions beyond human wisdom? You don't know what school, what, what uh, graduate school you're going to go to? Don't know which of the five girls who just would love to marry you, you want to marry? Don't know which class to take. I mean, I don't know what the decisions are. They may be tantamount. Don't know whether to get that surgery or not. Don't know what direction to pursue in your ministry. In the early days of Jesus' ministry, He faced a crucial decision. He had to select 12 men to follow Him for the remainder of His earthly ministry. These men would be the primary human core of the church. They would give, after His departure, leadership to the continuing work of the kingdom. And He would have to give Himself to train them and to prepare them. How did he make that decision? I'm glad you asked. Look at Luke chapter 6. 
verses 12 and 13. It says, And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Now listen, Jesus was God. Why? Why would you stay up all night to pray if you're Jesus? Because He was the perfect model of dependency. And He understood at this pressure point in having to make a decision that was beyond human wisdom, that it was compelling for Him to spend significant amounts of time in prayer. And so what does it say He did in verse 13? and says, And when day came, He called His disciples to Him, and He chose twelve of them, whom He also named as apostles. The comparable passage to this in Mark chapter 4, I believe it is, says that He called them so that they may be with Him. So he was trying to find those 12 men that he would bring into his life and who would be molded by his walk with the Father and who would be then molded by his teaching. And so Jesus, at this pressure point, a decision beyond human wisdom, did what? Got out John's book on, you know, how to find God's will. No, that's good. It's probably the best book out. Went and got Friesen's book, Decision Making in the Will of God, and got all intellectually captivated by the great theological aspects of finding the will of God. That's all good. What did Jesus do? He prayed. He prayed. Two in the morning, three in the morning, four in the morning, five in the morning, six in the morning. You need wisdom? You know what's so exciting again? James 1 says, if you want wisdom, guess what? God wants to give it to you. But you've got to ask in faith. In fact, you've got to ask. You've got to spend some time saying, Lord, give me that wisdom. And God wants to give you wisdom more than you want it. I assure you of that. The question is, will you receive it through that channel of prayer? Proverbs 2 says, if you'll make your ear attentive, if you'll climb your, incline your heart, if you'll cry out, if you'll lift your voice, if you'll seek it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will find the knowledge of God. Then wisdom will be manifested in your life. Remember in Acts chapter 13, I think it is, they were fasting and ministering to the Lord. And the Lord said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. So it was in that crucible of prayer that decisions beyond human wisdom are made. And let me tell you something, every decision is a big decision. Every decision you make today will influence your opportunity to make decisions tomorrow. And it carves a pathway. And I have to tell you, with great compulsion, you can't make decisions without a life of prayer if they're going to be the right decisions. So Jesus depended on the Lord when He was facing decisions beyond human wisdom. Thirdly, another pressure point in Jesus' life, just so you understand, He's been there. He's felt the pressure you're feeling. is when He was facing demands beyond human strength. Demands that were beyond human strength. Some of you are feeling it right now. You're feeling stressed. You're feeling physically weary. You're thinking, I can't go on. I just am not going to make it. Ready to bail out because the demands are beyond human strength. Let me tell you, you can come boldly before the throne of grace to a God who has been there and who will help you. And that's a motivation to pray. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. In the context, one of Jesus' dearest friends, John the Baptist, has just been beheaded. Now that will stretch your life out. 
don't know how you'd react if your best friend just got his head cut off, but that would stress me out. I've been teaching a class on pastoral leadership at San Jose Christian College in the San Jose area. And there's a young man in there named Hananiah Zoe who has been a dynamic leader in the country of Liberia. He's back here getting some training and getting ready to go back. And as you know, Liberia's had some horrendous, horrendous upheaval. And Hananiah was sharing with me one day that he just received word that week that two of his best friends, one who is a dynamic parachurch preacher, another one who is a dynamic church planter, they had labored together for years, that one of them, they just received word that he and his family had been killed, he had been beheaded. Then he received word just a few days later that his other friend, same thing, he'd been beheaded. That'd kind of stress you out, I guess. You know, Jesus was facing that. That night I went home to dinner and our family was praying. We pray for a different missionary in our church every night at dinner time. And my little, my youngest boy, he's the middle child, but the youngest boy, who's four years old, his name is Jordan. I was sharing this about these people that had their heads cut off and these missionaries, let's pray for their families. So little Jordan said, I want to pray for that one. So Jordan got down, he began to pray, he said, Dear Jesus, he's so sincere, Dear Jesus, we pray for the missionaries in Liberia, and we pray for the missionaries that got their heads cut off. Please help their heads to grow back. In Jesus' name, Amen. <laughs> oh, we couldn't laugh, I mean, but we were snickering under our breath. Simple faith. Simple faith. But that didn't help Hananiah. And certainly here, Jesus' best friend had his, his, his head cut off. That kind of would stress you out, I would think. In addition to that, Jesus was retreating, trying to get away because of the pressures, only to be followed by a great multitude. He turned around, had compassion. He was busy healing the sick. In the evening, they were all hungry. The disciples said, get them out of here, man. We're tired. You're tired. This is too much. Jesus said, no, go get that little boy at the fish and the loaves. He said, let's feed these people. You know the miracle of the loaves and the fish there in Matthew chapter 14, 5,000 men and women and children were fed. And it says in Matthew chapter 14, look with me at verse 23. And after he sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Now what are you going to do when you face demands beyond human strength? Is your source that counselor, that RD down the hallway? Is your source some new self-help book? you going to pump yourself up with some subliminal tape? What are you going to do? I'll tell you something, there is a Lord who's faced that pressure, worse than you'll ever feel it, and who learned how to cope because He was the ultimate model of the solution. And He says, I've been there. Now come boldly before the throne of grace that you might find grace and help in your time of need. I am your model. I am your master. I will give you all that you need when you're facing demands beyond human strength. Wow. Simple little adage, life is fragile, handle with prayer. So trite, but so true. Fourthly, another pressure point in Jesus' life, He learned to depend on the Father with a perfect sense of modeling for all of us when He was facing spiritual attack beyond human protection. When circumstantially He faced that. In particular, I'm thinking about what He said to Simon. And, and go back to Luke. I know we're flip-flopping here a little bit, but I want you to see something with me. Luke chapter 22. He's in the upper room celebrating the Passover feast, instituting the Lord's Supper knowing what he was about to face, and knowing what his disciples were about to face, spiritual attack beyond human protection. Look at Luke chapter 22, verses 31 
and 32. Luke 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, let me teach you a secret here. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when and, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He says, Simon, let me tell you, you, you got a glimpse of what I'm about to go through. Guess what? It's coming your way too, baby. But guess what? I've prayed. I've prayed. And because of my praying, it's going to come out okay. And there is going to be victory. You know, the Bible says in First Peter that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you're not immune to that. But in that very same book, he's talking about in that context being sober-minded because of Satan the adversary. And he says in the same book in First Peter, he says, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the purpose of prayer. Fight the enemy on the ground of prayer. You remember Ephesians 6? We fight not against flesh and blood. But in Ephesians 6, the kind of the climactic point there in verse 18, praying always with all kinds of prayer and supplication. Jesus learned and He modeled for us that He could pray at that pressure point of spiritual attack beyond human protection. Two more. Jesus became the perfect model depending on the Father when facing pressure beyond human endurance. Pressure that was beyond human endurance. And, and you know we live in a pressure cooker society. Some of you are feeling the pressure right now of studies and of relationships and problems at home, trying to decide what you're going to do with your future. Pressure beyond those human relationships. Let me show you how Jesus coped. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. You're already there in the neighborhood. But in verses 39 to 44, if you'll note them with me, prior to the cross, Pressure beyond anything any of us will ever know. It says in verse 39, And he came out and he proceeded as was, I love this, circle this, as was his custom. His custom. He wasn't out just because the crisis was on, I better turn up the prayer heat. No, this was customary for him. He went to the Mount of Olives and the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, verse 40, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. He withdrew from them a stone's throw. He knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, and yet not my will, but thine be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, you know the story, he found his disciples sleeping, and in another parallel passage, hey, can't you tarry with me one hour? But look at how Jesus found strength and grace when facing pressure beyond human endurance. You know, you look at that and you see Jesus agonizing. And, and if you're not careful, it's easy to buy into the modern day theory that it's just sufficient to pray without ceasing. And I believe, I've already pointed that out in the daily routines, Jesus did that all the time. But it is a one-two punch. You can't have one without the other. You have to learn to depend on Him on the daily routines. You also have to learn to have significant prayer encounters during the pressure points of life. And one without the other is not a balanced prayer life. A lot of people say, I just pray, you know, when I'm in the shower, on my way to work, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. You will never follow after the model of Jesus Christ if that's your theory of prayer. On the other hand, if all you do is sit over in the corner and agonize and grunt it out for an hour in the morning, and then you kind of forget about prayer for the rest of the day, you will never follow Jesus' model of prayer. But when you understand the dynamic of both of them working together to make you a person of prayer, it is so exciting. But it is easy today, in fact, some very popular writers, 
Some of you heard me say this before, have said that, you know, the Bible never makes prayer difficult, long, or agonizing. Well, I don't know what Bible that guy's been reading, but he must have skipped this verse. In fact, he must have skipped Paul's admonition in Romans chapter 16 and verse 30 when he said to the Romans facing incredible pressures in ministry, he says, I compel you, I entreat you by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to agonize together with me in your prayers to God for me. The Greek word there, soon agonizomai, literally means agonize in prayer with me. Remember Epaphras and, uh, or is that Thessalonians? No, Colossians 4.12 who agonized in prayer. And so sometimes, gang, I've got to tell you, the pressure points come and all you can do is agonize in prayer before God and say, Lord, my will is struggling. I don't want to do this. I'm, I'm beyond my point of resistance and endurance, but not my will but Yours. Tune me in. Change me from the inside out. Give me strength. Give me grace because You've told me to come boldly. And so he learned to pray when facing the pressure points beyond human endurance. And then lastly, and I think significantly, he learned to pray when facing pain that was beyond human tolerance. Pain that was beyond human tolerance. And we see that in the very next chapter when Jesus went to the cross. He was facing crucifixion. He was suspended between heaven and earth on an old wooden cross. He had become the, the subject of all of God's wrath against the sin and, and the, the degradation of mankind as He bore in Himself our sins in His body on the tree. He faced physical, emotional, spiritual pain unlike anything you will ever face. And how did He respond? How did He deal with the pressure point? Well, you'll notice here in Luke chapter 23... That in verses 33 and 34, it says, And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals on one, one on the right and the other on the left. And Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He was facing the pain of rejection. The ultimate rejection. All of us deal with rejection, don't we? This was the ultimate rejection. He was feeling the rejection of mankind. He faced the rejection of his disciples, who in the crunch were out to lunch. You know, they kind of left. Even feeling the rejection, in a sense, of the Father because of bearing the sin of all mankind on the tree. He also felt the pain of what I call abandonment. Look at verse 46. As the scene goes on, and about the sixth hour, darkness came, the sun was obscured, the veil of the temple was torn in two, verse 46, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So you see him facing the pain of abandonment. You see him facing the pain of death. As he here, in the ultimate crucial point of pain, beyond human endurance, does what? He prays. He prays. And I hope that's motivating to you. Because it's not fair to me to call myself a Christian if I'm not committed to being like Jesus. It's unfair to me to claim the name of Christ if I am not a disciple of His. And I submit to you this morning that there is no area more important in our following and our pursuit of the character of Christ in his prayer life. He learned to model dependence in the daily routines of life and he learned to model dependence when facing the ultimate pressure points of life. I quote once more, more time and one final time from S.D. Gordon's book. 
He says, how much prayer meant to Jesus? It was not only his regular habit, but it was his resort in every emergency, however slight or serious. When perplexed, he prayed. When hard-pressed by work, he prayed. If tempted, he prayed. If criticized, he prayed. If fatigued in body or wearied in spirit, he had recourse to his own one unfailing habit of prayer. There was no emergency, no difficulty, no necessity, no temptation that would not yield to prayer as he practiced it. Shall not we go back over these examples again and again until every breath in our heart breathes His very spirit of prayer? And shall we not to ask Him daily to teach us how to pray and then plan to get alone with Him regularly that He may have opportunity to teach us and we the opportunity to practice His teaching? We're going to close. We have a few minutes here at the end. We're going to close and I'm going to ask you in just a moment unless you physically cannot do it. Some of you are in the bleachers and that will be a little more difficult. But those of you on the floor could do this. I'm going to ask you to assume a position of prayer in just a moment. Preferably on your knees or just seated there. And I want you to sincerely today ask Jesus Christ to teach you to pray. Again, I reiterate to you, He wants to teach you to pray more than you want to pray. You say, all right, I want to learn to pray, now what do I do? You've just got to make a decision. I'm going to start organizing my schedule around my praying rather than my praying around my schedule. It's that simple. You've got to decide, when am I going to do it? You say, but I don't know how. i got to go to that, that seminar. Or i got to go to that, uh, that, that uh, class on prayer. No, you don't. The greatest class of prayer is to get on your knees and just start hammering out between you and God and realize that Jesus wants to teach you to pray more than you want to learn. He's been there already and He has said, Hey, please come with all confidence to the throne of grace because I've been there. And I'll teach you. And I'll make you a person of prayer. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, The more we pray, the more we shall want to pray. And the more we pray, the more we can pray. And the more we pray, the more we shall pray. And he who prays little will pray less. But he who prays much will pray more. And he who prays more will desire to pray more abundantly. The question today is not do you agree or do you disagree. The question today is not do you philosophically understand. The question today is will you pray. It's that simple. And you have one response. Either yes or no. Let's go to our knees this morning if you will.